It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. On the 14th of March, two and a half weeks after Russia invaded Ukraine, and amid mounting cries from the British public to do more to help. The government launched a new visa scheme called Homes for Ukraine. The unfailingly compassionate British public wants to help further. Which is why, Mr Speaker, today we are answering that call with the announcement of a new sponsorship scheme, Homes for Ukraine. It's now been six weeks since that announcement, and things haven't quite gone to plan. It's not going too well so far, and I think even Priti Patel and Home Office ministers and officials admit that it's going much slower than initially hoped for. Thousands are still stuck, waiting to come to the UK, even though they found families who are willing to host them. Their rescue clogged up by bureaucracy. And that's not even the worst of the problems. There's been quite a lot of exploitation involved. Some single men who are trying to lure Ukrainian women over who are obviously vulnerable and desperate for accommodation. And they're offering and insisting on sexual favours in response to that. For those who have made it to Britain, there's relief and sorrow. It was, it was just so heartbreaking to uh, live husband. He stayed there and we crossed the border. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, one Ukrainian family's journey to London. John Rutherford here. Hi, John. This is Manveen from The Times. Hello. Hello. Thanks so much for talking to me. All right. For the past month, we've been speaking to a man named John Rutherford. Back in mid-March, John signed up to the UK's Homes for Ukraine scheme and invited a Ukrainian family, a mother and her two children, to stay with him and his wife Sue in London. The first time we spoke... The family had made it out of Ukraine, and with the help of a couple John knew, they'd made it all the way to Calais, while they waited for their visa to be approved. 
It's now coming up to four o'clock on the 21st of March. Where, where exactly are you and what have you been doing? I'm, I'm at home in Norbury. I've been spending today, a lot of it I've been spending chatting and WhatsApping with various people. Obviously, Natalia, who are actually in Calais at the moment. And my MP, Steve Reid, and the Times. I've been sort of trying to update everybody and keep them at what's happening. And trying to get somebody who's got a bit of blat, as the Russians call it, a bit of clout, <laughs> to see if they can get the Home Office to expedite this and get the visas approved. But I think the hope that we're going to do it today is basically faded now, but at least they're safe there. And as soon as the visas are authorized, we will do whatever's necessary to get them to here in, in Aubrey, um, where their rooms are sitting waiting for them. Well, take me back to the start. What made you feel like you really wanted to do, do something about the refugees who were trying to make their way over? Well, I've been volunteering for a while, a few months anyway, with Refugees at Home, which is a charity that, that says, you know, we'll place a refugee in your home, hence the name of the charity. And I've done that. We had an Iranian chap. We had an Ethiopian chap with us. And so when I heard about the, the scheme for bringing over what would ultimately be large numbers of Ukrainians, I thought, yeah, that's for me. We can do that and discussed it with my wife, and she agreed with me that it's exactly the right thing to do. So when I heard it, I, as soon as I saw the sponsorship registration thing pop up, I, I signed up for that. And then I met Natalia over the internet. That's a different story, how I know Natalia. I did this thing where you hire an Airbnb, but with no intention of actually using it. I was doing that. And I booked rooms, you know, sort of virtual rooms in Kiev and Kharkiv, Anyway, and I got chatting. It's a way uh, of getting money to, to people on the yeah, ground. That's right, yeah, exactly. Just as a way of putting actual money in their pockets because yeah, it's, it's obviously very tough over there yeah. and all of their sources of income have gone because of, because of the war. Anyway, yes, yeah, so we got chatting and I said, I, so English is quite good, so it was easy for me. And I said, do you know anybody who might be interested in coming to England, coming to the UK as part of this program? And she sort of hummed and hard for a bit and then said, well, actually, uh, we are, me and my two kids. <laughs> Wow, she said she was very n nervous about it. She said because uh, you don't want you don't want to leave her husband, you don't want to leave her brother. Her brother's got kids, but Natalia and her kids were, because they were in an area that was very dangerous. They they fled west, and when they finally decided, they they crossed the border. And purely by serendipity, I was a, I made contact with this couple, Angie and Graham, for, who are from just down the road from me in Stratton, who were in the, the Lublin area with a minivan, a minibus that they'd been delivering supplies to and I, I said to them hey could you possibly give a lift back with this family and they said absolutely and so they, they put themselves out tremendously it took a like a, it must have been at least a hundred mile detour to wow. the border post picked up natalia and her kids polina and disha who are obviously you, know, you can imagine their lives have been turned upside down and they've they're upset and frightened by the whole business, well, as many, all the kids who, have, who are victims of this horrible mess. Mm. How, how old are they? What, what do you know about them? Well, not a lot. Polina is 14, and the only thing I know about her really is that she, she likes Ukrainian country dancing, you know, <laughs> traditional Ukrainian dancing. Well, that's a skill and, you'll be uh, picking up in the next few months then. Yeah, oh, <laughs> it's interesting. I'm hoping, you know, hoping one day to see her dance before too long. Our little Tisha, he's seven. And he's a very quiet, shy boy. Yeah, he's quite studious and a bit quiet. 
reserved little lad, and he has found this whole thing very, very upsetting. And I'd be, I'd, Angie was telling me he's very sad and upset by the whole business. And so yeah. we were hoping to get him over here and you know, get him feeling secure and give him some treats to cheer him up. We stayed in touch with John in the days that followed, asking him for updates. On the 23rd of March, he texted, No news about visas. Natalia and the kids are in a hotel in Calais, a bit bored and cramped, but safe. On the 24th, he wrote, With luck, it won't be long. Natalia, by the way, didn't want to talk to us while she was waiting in visa limbo, just in case it affected her chances if she complained. Finally, after about a week, John sent us this voice note. This is a test recording. One, two, three, four, five, six. Check. It's Sunday, the 27th of March. We've received notification from Natalia that the visas have arrived for her kids. And so now we are currently planning to set off for Calais uh, tomorrow morning. And I'll probably record some little clips about our progress. So, more to follow. It's Monday morning. We are currently packing to go over to Calais. We've got a little picnic uh, ready. And we're looking forward to meeting Natalia and Polina and Tisha. And we'll be uh, on the road within the next 10 minutes. Okay, it's coming up to 6 o'clock and we are en route, heading south towards the shuttle terminal on a cool and misty South London morning. And the shuttle is moving. So we are now about to depart England. Next stop, France. We were just chatting about how amazing, how fantastical it, it feels that there are people being shelled and hiding from rockets in cellars in, in Ukraine, only at like a thousand miles or so away. It just seems incredible. And it's uh, somehow it's going to make it a lot realer when we actually meet people who've fled that situation. We'll be seeing them soon. I'm Matt Dathan. I'm the Times' Home Affairs Editor. Matt, take us back to when the Homes for Ukraine scheme was launched. Why did the government started. Mr Speaker, with your permission, I would like to make a statement on our government's response to help those fleeing the conflict in Ukraine. The unfailingly compassionate British public wants to help further, which is why, Mr Speaker, today we are answering that call with the announcement of a new sponsorship scheme, Homes for Ukraine. The Homes for Ukraine scheme was initially launched on the March the 14th, which was when UK households could register their interests for accommodating Ukrainian refugees. It wasn't until March the 18th, on the Friday of that week, that people could actually start applying for the visas for those Ukrainian refugees to come to the UK. They launched it in the wake of 
intense criticism at the UK's response to the refugee crisis. If you think back, we're talking about two weeks into the war, more than two weeks into the war in Ukraine. And up until then, the only route for Ukrainians to come to the UK was through an extension of the family visa scheme, which initially, Priti Patel was heavily criticised because she hadn't extended it very far at all. It was only actually available to very close family members. And it was uh, eventually extended to aunts, uncles, grandparents, grandchildren, etc., etc. So quite extended family members. But obviously that did not allow people who had no ties to the UK to come here. And there was a big sort of outpouring of public support for the UK to do much more. So it was born out of that. But secondly, it was also born out of the fact that the EU had gone much further than the UK. The Council will be activating the Temporary Protection Directive. That gives a legal base for the protection of people fleeing from Ukraine right now. It also contains a list of rights for the individuals, like the support they have the right to receive from the state, but also the right to work, for example. We must sort of take this the bit of scepticism, because the EU had an existing policy in place that allowed Ukrainians to travel visa-free throughout the whole of the Schengen area for up to 90 days. So it was able, naturally, to say you can come to any EU country in the Schengen zone without having to apply for a visa. But obviously that put the UK in, in a massive contrast to France, Germany, etc. And when this scheme was launched, finally, how was it received by the public? What was the reaction? Massive. The latest YouGov poll indicates almost one in five people would offer accommodation to a Ukrainian family. So this is the room that we're able to offer, double bed and a single bed on the floor. This is the, this is the lounge at the moment. What I was thinking was that this could be converted to a bedroom. I'd like to be able to look after them. I think they've been through absolute hell. And for me, I, it makes me feel guilty that... I can just sit here and have all this space. 20,000 people signed up in just two hours. It's a moral obligation, I think, for us all here to be able to do something. In the first 24 hours, more than 100,000 people had registered their interest to accommodating a a refugee. Now, I guess that isn't the same as um, actually filling out the visa form, which came a week later. It was only after people had registered their interest through a very simple form that they realised that actually the scheme is incredibly complicated. And on the 18th of March, the formal application process started for actually bringing refugees over. So you, as an individual, you, you have to A, register interest and, then, and commit to accommodating Ukrainian refugee for at least six months. And then after that, you then fill out a visa application form where you sponsor a Ukrainian refugee who's coming to the UK you have to find that Ukrainian refugee yourself. You have to match. Mm. You have to match them yourself, and then you, together with the refugee, you fill out the visa application form. Second stage is actually very, quite a very complex stage, and that's where all the delays have happened. When you create the form, I mean, I signed up as a sponsor. That was easy. I just said, "This is me. This is my passport." The difficult bit was when Natalia had to do the visas. First of all, you had to do a visa for each person. So she had to fill the form in three times. The first bit was my details again. So she had to enter my uh, passport details. And that's everything, not just the number, but the date of issue, the date of completion, the, the issuing location, all that, all that kind of stuff. 
Ugh. And then she had to fill in her own details and then the same thing again for each of her two kids. So that took her a couple of hours. And it wasn't clear whether it was supposed to be me submitting it or her submitting it. And we talked about this, and I said, it's best if it's you, but you speak English. I don't speak Ukrainian, so you can, you will be good at making sure you've copied down my details correctly, whereas I might make a mistake on yours. So she she did that and sent that off into the void and got acknowledgement and was given three codes from the home office. So she, she, it's quite clearly in the system. But then since they're nothing, and you know, I thought, oh, how long can this take? They've got a, they've got a sponsor, they've, they've got the, her details, the important thing is to get them over to the UK, take pressure off the EU, which has got, as we know, several million people as refugees. And we've got a tiny number by comparison. So it's a, it, to me, it seemed obvious that it would be done fast, but apparently not, not fast enough. Matt, when we've been speaking to someone, John Rutherford, who signed up for the scheme, he was so frustrated at the bureaucracy and the slow pace. Can you just take us through some of the initial criticisms that were being levelled at the scheme just after it was launched? Yeah, sure. The Homes Ukraine scheme is incredibly complicated because you have to, as I was saying, you have to find a, a Ukrainian refugee yourself. The government deliberately did not create a matching service itself because it didn't want, well, essentially it conceded that government bureaucracy does delay things and it felt that if it was to start organising and registering Ukrainian refugees and then matching them with UK hosts themselves and that would be hit with the bureaucracy and the bureaucratic sort of machine of government and it, it thought it would be much more agile if individuals got together themselves, whether it be on Facebook groups or through charities and NGOs. But it, it led to a lot of criticism. So A, the difficulty in actually matching and finding Ukrainian refugees, but mm. B, it led to a lot of concerns over safeguarding and, and these people matching with each other on very much unregulated Facebook websites where we've found since that there's been quite a lot of exploitation involved of some single men who are trying to lure you know, young, attractive Ukrainian women over who are obviously vulnerable and desperate for accommodation. And they're offering and insisting on sexual favours in response to that. Which is horrifying. Has it got much better? Yes, it has. And the government always said that it would work with charities in a second stage of the scheme where it would support charities to set up the matching service themselves. And they've done that through the Reset charity. They registered around 7,000 Ukrainian refugees on the, in border towns of Poland, for example, and they've been registering UK hosts and then putting them in touch with each other. And they also offer professional support in terms of psychological help for both the refugees and also the families to make sure that there's the support in place when refugees who have gone through very traumatic experiences recently have the support around them and, and to also make sure that they have the support of the local authority. But that's been another problem, that local authorities have not been given the data for how many Ukrainian refugees are actually going to their area. So while the government is offering £2,500 per refugee to the local authority for all sorts of help, the local authorities are saying, well, we aren't even being told who is coming to our area before they actually arrive. So there's been a lot of criticism on all, all different levels there. Coming up. I was sitting uh, in the countryside and I got a, a message that someone wanted to book uh, yeah. my flat. 
I got in touch with the Airbnb support and said, please, no, <laughs> I, 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 I'm not going to confirm it because it's not safe in Kiev. Yeah. Uh, maybe that person doesn't know. But first, a message from a colleague. I'm Megan Agnew. I'm a commissioning editor and writer at the Sunday Times magazine. I organise and write interviews with politicians, stroppy heartthrob actors who absolutely don't want to be there, authors, artists and features on a whole range of issues. We can only do this thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. Yeah, so you're, you sort of said, you're a, bit, a little bit shell-shocked, though. You're a bit stunned. Just a little bit. It's just, it's just having waited for so long, it seems amazing to think that it's all happened. On Monday, the 28th of March, Natalia and her two children, Paulina and Tisha, arrived in the UK. The Times journalist Damien Whitworth went to John and Sue's house in Norbury, London, along with a photographer to meet the family on their arrival. People around here have been great. I mean, one of our friends, she's a professional florist. When she heard that we were getting Ukrainians, she went and organised a whip round. Right. She'd been, she, she's collecting clothing and she, they went to the local Eastern European shop and they bought a whole pile of Ukrainian food. Oh, wow. Talia was almost in tears. She was so touched. <laughs> such, such sweet people. Yeah. Everybody wants to do what they can. And everyone wants to help, don't they? Everybody wants to help her. I, you know, I heard people say, anything we, we can do. Here they come. Hello. 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 This is Paulina. Hello. This Hi, is, Paulina. This is Hi, Mr. Whitworth. Hi, yep. Nice to meet you. Hello. And, um, Hello, Natalia. Very nice to meet you, Natalia. I've heard nice a lot about you guys, and we've been fingers crossed that you yes. guys would get here soon. You, yes, Let me... Oh, yeah, you brought it. Oh, thank you. Happy birthday, Sue. Sitting in the hotel room in Calais, waiting. <laughs> oh, it's beautiful. Oh, oh, oh happy birthday. <laughs> thank you. Well, uh, while being in Ukraine, I didn't plan to go abroad no. at first. And when uh, all this happened yeah. on the 24th of February, uh, we decided to go outside of Kiev. Yes. Because we've, <clears throat> we've got a house in the 
countryside in oh, the nice. village, yeah. not far from Kyiv, and yes. we thought we would be quite safe there. So first we moved to our house, but in two days uh, all the routes were occupied by Russian tanks and we were like blocked there for 12 days. And all the time I was searching for some uh, options how to escape, how to move to the western part of Ukraine. And then it was such a surprise for me. I was sitting uh, in the countryside and I got a, a message that someone wanted to book uh, yeah. my flat. It was the 7th of March, uh, I remember. I got in touch with the Airbnb support and said, please, no, <laughs> I, 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 I'm not going to confirm it because it's not safe in Kiev. Yeah. Uh, maybe that person doesn't know or I don't know about uh, her plans, why, why she did it, but please just uh, reject it. Yeah. And they did reject it. Right. And uh, then uh, that person got in touch with me again on Airbnb and said, I was not going to stay in your apartment. I just wanted to support you financially in such a way. I was so surprised. And then the next day there was another person. And mm -hmm. then uh, John also supported me financially mm -hmm. in, that, uh, in such a way. And then uh, I think it was when uh, John asked me if I knew someone who wanted to participate in the program mm -hmm. Home for Refugees in Great Britain. I said, John, then maybe I could think over this option for me and my kids. At the very beginning, were you a bit unsure about coming to England because of the publicity about the visas and, you know, do English people want... Uh, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I was not sure. I was not sure. Because it was not actually my plan no. to go abroad no. anyway. It was, it was just so heartbreaking mm. to uh, leave husband. Yeah. Uh, and he stayed there and we crossed the border. Because he's not allowed to leave, is that right? He he's not allowed yeah, no. to go abroad, no. no. Men are not allowed. And does he have to take part or can you say what he will have to do? Will he have to be part of the effort? or? Uh, when he gets back to the countryside, he wants to join like uh, the team who is controlling, uh, you know, this village. Right. It, it's called a territorial like defense yes. team. Well, hopefully they're pushing them back. Hopefully, we're all praying for yeah. it. That's well, the only thing which we all need. Yeah. Before the 24th, uh, we thought that each of us had so many problems, so many different issues to resolve and plan, of course. But uh, after that, uh, all those problems just gone. We've got all the same problems. At the end of last week, the government released the latest figures on the Homes for Ukraine scheme. 65,900 visa applications have now been received. Of those, 39,300 visas have been issued.
it's not going too well so far. And I think even Priti Patel and Home Office uh, ministers and officials admit that it's going much slower than initially hoped for. And the reason why is, well, there's various reasons that have been given and no one knows for, sh- for certain. But uh, the Home Office's view is that a lot of people, a lot of Ukrainians are actually seeing Russian, the Russians retreat from, you know, largely populated cities like Kiev and, and uh, surrounding areas. And the Home Office thinks that is a reason why people are actually maybe having second thoughts about coming to the UK. Uh, they've, they're using the scheme as a, an insurance policy and a last resort, and they naturally want to try and stay as, as close as possible. Is the Home Office really claiming that the reason... 30,000 Ukrainians haven't come here is because they're all trying to stay because we keep hearing still from people who are still struggling to make the scheme work to get through the bureaucracy. Yeah, I mean, there's other reasons as well. I mean, the other reasons we've been given is that um, Ukrainians have actually been deterred and put off by the, from the scheme because of massive delays in applying. There mm-hmm. are also you know, countless number of people I've spoken to, whether it be UK hosts and Ukrainian refugees, but also talking to charities and organisations who are representing them, that the reason why so few people have actually come to the UK despite being issued a visa is because of the way the Home Office is um, issuing the visas. To apply as a Ukrainian refugee, uh, if, if you want to avoid going into a visa application centre to attend a physical appointment, you have to have been registered in Ukraine by the end of last year a lot of children haven't been registered and don't have the proof of documents to prove that they were resident in Ukraine. And that delays the whole family coming because you're not obviously going to leave a young child or baby behind. And so that's why so few people have actually arrived. So the Home Office is actually issuing these visas sporadically and not to whole families. They're actually issuing them to individual family members without issuing them to the whole family at the same time. Which is such an odd way of doing it because nobody would travel without their family. Is there a sense that this is Probably not great for our reputation across Europe. That's right. It's. I think it's going to all depend on, obviously, what happens in Ukraine and how long the war lasts and, and, and where it t- takes place. But I think as long as visa checks stay in place, Britain is always going to lag behind the rest of Europe. And the actual process, I won't go into the boring details of it, but the process is ridiculously manual and old-fashioned in the Home Office mm. for, the, for actually processing a visa. You have to... The, the actual application goes through three different systems, computer systems, before it can be actually arrive at the desk of the, the actual decision maker, who, who is a human. And it, th- that itself is quite extraordinary, given the age we live in, and you'd thought it'd be much more automated. Clearly, Ukraine is the most urgent problem on everybody's mind. But is there a sense that this is actually having a knock-on effect, for example, Afghan refugees who've been trying to come over since last summer or who we've been trying to find homes for since last summer, are they being sidelined as a result of all of this? Well, I think the government are very aware that they don't want to create a picture where the, the, where certain groups of refugees are being prioritised over other classes of refugees, etc. The reason they gave for setting up a Homes for Ukraine scheme where members of the public offer their own homes rather than the government trying to find homes is that the government accepting that they failed the Afghan refugees, given that we've evacuated around 15,000 Afghans during the evacuation effort in August, 12,000 of them are still living in hotels because of the government and local government's failure to find them permanent homes. The government didn't want to, you know, promise tens of thousands of Ukrainians over without having somewhere to, to house them. The way they've done it, however, is that that they face being accused of allowing Ukrainians to sort of skip the queue, for want of a better phrase, because Afghans are 
sitting in their hotel thinking, well, why weren't we offered a, you know, a welcoming room and a member of the public's house? And hmm. the government are, however, looking into and making the Homes Ukraine scheme a bit more permanent and for the UK's refugee response longer term and are considering whether we could actually, because there's actually now more than 200,000 people have offered registered their interest in housing a, a Ukrainian refugee and possibly contacting them and saying, well, we don't actually have the demand for the for Ukrainians, but there are plenty of Afghan refugees who could do with your room. Now I need John. Okay, I got you. Whoa, it's getting getting high now. It's getting high and there's lumps of wood around all over the place. Hello up there. What's it like up there? We're currently in uh, Box Hill and there's a sort of little play park for the kids and they can climb up branches and trees and um, little Tisha is currently about two meters up on a sort of branch of a tree. He's, I think he's quite proud of himself. Natalia just took a picture of up this up this tree. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, Matt Dathan, Home Affairs Editor for The Times, and John and Sue Rutherford. Special thanks, too, to Damien Whitworth, Features Writer for The Times, and, of course, Natalia, Paulina, and Tisha. You can read Damien's story about Natalia's journey and all of Matt's work on this issue at thetimes.co.uk with a subscription. This episode was produced by Taryn Siegel. The executive producer is Kate Ford. And sound design was by David Crackles. If you'd like to get in touch with us with any thoughts on what you've just heard or any ideas for future episodes, then do drop us a line to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. And if you enjoyed this episode, please do leave us a review. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history.
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. (laughs) This was, like, wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, (laughs) you you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.